decline kiddos and nursery, you may be dismissed. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to uh, Mark, and we are nearing the end of our awesome journey through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in 14 and 15 today as we walk through uh, this time, and so this morning, uh, I know my front row's familiar with, but how many of you are familiar with like time travel movies and the concept of traveling through time? Okay. Not that we really do it, but we know the theory, right? Every movie handles it differently. But let's say this morning we're going to do a little time travel, and we're going to go back to AD 31. We're just going to pull a gal and a guy off the street and zip them here this morning for church at Incline. And uh, we don't have much time to catch them up on human history, so we just zoom them in and say, hey... So they're coming in, they see the outside of our building, they're probably in awe of what this thing called electricity is, wondering what we're all wearing, maybe. And then uh, they come on in, and we greet them, and we're getting to know their names, and, and we'll just assume they can speak English, and uh, bring them on down around the corner, and uh, bring them into our sanctuary, and then they take a step back. <laughs> you see this fear come over them, and they're like... <laughs> We're like, what's the matter? Their jaw drops. What do you think it is? The, the cross. They come in and they see a cross. What's going on in their minds? They're like, are we the ones? <laughs> is one of, are we in trouble? What's going on here? This is, the cross, for them to walk in and see that, this is the means of execution of the Roman Empire, the means of control. The means of inviting fear, they would set it up on the side of the road so that those who stood against the Roman state, those who committed crimes, were seen to suffer. And I don't need to go into all the details, but often they were quite beaten before they even hit the cross. Uh, then they were nailed to the cross, and at some point, if they weren't dead from bleeding out, their legs would be broken so they would suffocate by the weight coming down on them on the cross. Painful, excruciating, horrible death. Well, let's imagine them looking around and saying, we've got t-shirts with crosses. I've got a shirt with crosses today. Jewelry made out of crosses. It would be absurd to them. What if we were to be picked up and did a little time travel in the future? We go into a church service and we see right up in the center in front is an electric chair, empty. And people had little electric chairs around their neck and T-shirts with electric chairs. We would be mortified and we would be offended and disgusted and wonder what on earth. Why do you worship an electric chair or worship at the foot of an electric chair? What does it mean? See, this, the idea of the cross um, is something we're going to enter into today. And as I studied and wrestled with this passage and I looked at what's going on in our world, there are so many questions that come up around the cross. And people who struggle with their faith have a hard time with understanding what happened on the cross and why was it necessary? Was it necessary at all for God to do this? Uh, some common objections you might hear are how can a loving God do this to his son. No parent would seek to offer forgiveness through the punishment of a child. Um, 
How can God punish God? If Jesus had to die, then does God really forgive us at all? And wasn't there another way for this to happen? Couldn't there have been another possibility? Um, Some reduce it to just a victory over Satan, and, and some try to minimize what happened, but we all try to understand it and figure out what's going on. And so as we look at this, um, there's this thing called substitutionary atonement. And one person, and I looked across the breadth of the internet just looking at people's responses to the cross. Um, One skeptic who was once following said, um, the problem with this necessity of death on the cross is the way I see it imagining God. It makes God the source of redemptive violence and why would God require the death of an innocent victim in order to satisfy himself being offended? What kind of justice or God is this? That's a fair criticism, I think. You see, justice is at the center of this. It really is, uh, what is our view? What is your view of justice? Whenever we say, justice has been served, how do you know? How do we know right from wrong and what deserves justice? What deserves that ultimate death penalty? That's a tough question, isn't it? What does justice look like? And that's going to be at the core of how we begin to wrestle with what's happening here in human history, this event that happened to this man, Jesus Christ, and what the Bible teaches us it meant. You see, as we look at these events unfold today, we're going to peel back some layers to understand the why behind this moment in history. No matter what you believe about Jesus or God, there's, it's an undeniable fact that the death of this man, Jesus Christ, on a cross happened and that it changed human history. It, 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 that moment had an impact greater than any other person's death. It has reverberated for thousands of years since his death. So if you look here in Mark, I'm going to read to you some of uh, these, this passage here, and uh, kind of skip around a little bit, but uh, I'll start off in Mark 14, uh, right after Jesus prays. He says, immediately uh, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, uh, with him and with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They all got together on one team He says, now the betrayer had given him the sign, saying, this is the one. I will kiss this man, seize him, and lead him away underground, or under guard. And so, Jesus had the last supper with his disciples. Um, They spent time together. He said, someone, one of you is going to betray me. Judas went out, betrayed him. Here in the middle of the night, they had gone after their Passover meal. So it's pretty late at night, and All his disciples are falling in and out of sleep, and then a garrison of guards come. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. One of those stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. He was 
all alone, and then he was taken before the council. <laughs> and uh, it says they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and the scribes that came together. Peter followed him at a distance uh, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and, and, warning him, and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up, said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds in heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and, and slap his face. And they said, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Soon he would be delivered up unto Pilate for yet another trial because the Jews dare not put a man to death on their own. They are under Roman rule. And once again, Pilate, we see, quizzes him. And in verse 4 of chapter 15, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And Jesus made no further answer. Pilate was amazed. At the feast, they, he used to release them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had, been, who had committed murder and insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. He answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have a release of Barnabas instead. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having Jesus scorned or scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. In a matter of hours, Jesus has gone from, from teaching and breaking bread to having people desert him, deny him, to have an unfair trial, and now to have mobs call for him to be crucified. The soldiers would take him and mock him, put a purple cloak on him, and as we know, a crown of thorns on him. And lead him to be crucified. In verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They brought him to a place called Golgotha. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, deciding what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him said, King of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Maybe when they hung them up, they 
put their crime there so they knew what they were being punished for and the crowds could see it. And so those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Come on down from that cross. The chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And with the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And by some of the bystanders hearing it said, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn. When the centurion stood facing him, saw in this way, he breathed this last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. And in that moment, Jesus Christ died. Why? Why did this happen? And why did it have to happen this way? Well, this morning, the necessity of the cross, I believe, can be summed up in three words. Penal substitutionary atonement. <laughs> may sound like big words. Maybe you've heard these terms before. Maybe you haven't. But I believe in the day and age we live, we need to address this and talk about the why behind this and, and what these words mean and, and what was accomplished on the cross. So often we can come and it's easy to get buried in the suffering of Christ because it's amazing what he did on our behalf. But if we don't understand why it happened and what it accomplished, we're going to miss the power of the cross in our lives and in our struggles and in the things that are tough. So, PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, not a public service announcement. Um, penal is simply a word that means penalty. Um, a penalty is being paid, and we understand this. Does the penalty fit the crime? We have rules and fines and prison time and punishments in each country based on penalty. So, penal is the idea of does it meet our demand for justice to be served? Substitutionary means the punished one um, has somebody standing in their place and taking the punishment. But a key thing with this is also keep in mind that substitutionary also means that the person legally represents the one who's supposed to be punished. They're a representative of that person. Much like if you were on a board and you sit somebody with a proxy vote that can vote in your place, they have the full power in their hands to make that decision. And so we're saying that the substitute takes the place but also has authority to represent. Atonement. It's this idea the payment was sufficient for the crime. The scales of justice are once again in balance because of what happened. And so, it's pretty important because if we're to say and to claim that this moment of Jesus dying on the cross, that whoever believes he did this and that he rose from the grave will have eternal life, it's a pretty important thing in human history, right? If we're claiming this is the moment. 
And our whole faith depends on what happened in these hours. And so as I dug into this topic, it only took me a few seconds to find stories of people who were having a hard time understanding the cross, uh, those who struggled in their faith or those who had different views of what happened. And I found it most interesting to find a young man in his 20s and a blogger, of course. And so he said, here's my journey. And he said, I, I, I began to hear sermons and he talked about just the idea of that God would do this. If God is love, how could the cross be the answer? And it confused him in his faith. And he, he began to wonder, you know, is this, was this really necessary? Is this a God I want to worship? Is this such a violent God? And as he began to study, he, he came to a point to his credit where he said, I've got to push out all the noise. I'm just going to take a few months, read nothing else but the scriptures from beginning to end, as long as it takes me, and try and understand what happened in this moment. You see, because I believe reading the Bible, if you just take it and read it as one story from Genesis to Revelation, it reveals penal substitutionary atonement is the key theme from start to finish. If you begin in Genesis, you see that there's a holy and perfect God who created the world. And he set within it animals and creatures, and yet he made human beings in his own image for a relationship with him. That relationship with him, because he is holy and perfect, must be a holy and perfect relationship. Otherwise, it can't happen. And there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and opened up the eyes of uh, those who would eat it to, to see the rebellion against God. And yet Satan came down and tempted them and said, no, you'll become like God. He's trying to keep you from becoming like him. And they took it. And at that moment, the world was broken. Sin entered the world and there's a separation between man and God. And immediately God doled out penalties. He cursed the earth, the serpent, and man. Death entered the world. Physical death and eternal separation from God as well, a spiritual death. And from that moment, though, God also instituted a plan and said, I'm going to bring redemption through the seed of the woman, and his heel will crush your head to the serpent. And then we move on, and if we do a real quick survey of the Scriptures, we begin to see that God began to establish, and even human beings in different cultures began to understand there's sin and there's penalty for sin. There's wrong things, there's right things. And governments began to form. But within God's people, he set up a sacrificial system, didn't he? A system where you can um, take an animal that is unblemished and shed its blood as a payment for sin. There's chapters upon chapters on how that worked and which animals and when. And, and there's a day of atonement where all the sins could be placed and they could be sent out and removed from them on the back of a goat, the scapegoat. And there were kings put in place. The people of Israel wanted a king to submit this justice and to rule rightly and fairly. Moses, even when he led, they wanted that. They demanded justice from him. The Psalms, the, the prophets began to point to the need for a Savior, a Messiah to come. The people didn't always understand it, but even once Jesus arrived, we're going to see here as we look today, Jesus continually pointed to the need of what he was going to do and what he came to do. 
And after Jesus died and rose again, his disciples and Paul, who wrote the letters, began to flesh this out of the necessity of one who died sinless, and he became our righteousness. You see, the basis of this this idea of of these beliefs is a God who declares himself holy and perfect and true, therefore sin has a cost to it. Sin is not just injustice committed against another person. We have rules for that, but we need to understand that sin at its core is committed against a holy and perfect God. And God himself calls for an atonement or payment for sins. He set it up for us to do that with one another, but also with him so that we can be in a relationship with him and be spared from the punishment that was due us from the moment that we rejected him as human beings. You see, that same young man, uh, he summarized his thoughts up after he began to understand this. He said, as I began to read the Bible more deeply, I understood these texts in light of this great theme of Scripture. He said, as I saw the Old Testament present the gospel of Jesus as clearly as the new, it showed me that the doctrine of Jesus bearing our sin and its penalty is profoundly central to the vast sweep of the story of human history. I want to read to you this morning from Isaiah 53. I want you to understand that this is a passage written hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, ever was convicted, or ever went to the cross. And this is what the prophet said. Who has believed what he has heard from us? In whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. That's where we get that song from. Acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Read that again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a pretty amazing passage, isn't it? A pretty amazing picture of who God is. You see, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The the payment was made and accepted by God and planned out by God. And Jesus declared himself, and this was part of his trial, wasn't it? You claimed that you would tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. He was talking about himself, but he told the disciples, he began to build to them and tell them, I must die. I must be turned over. The Son of Man must die and then die on a cross. And I, I believe this is what we, we can uh, simply call the fact of the redemption or the fact of the atonement. There's a penalty for sin, but God in his mercy allows a payment or an atonement for that sin. And the Bible points us towards a need for a final perfect payment. Otherwise, the sacrificial system would have to keep going and going and going and going. But God provided a payment once and for all. That's the facts of the atonement. That's just what the Bible teaches. And yet, if we look here... um, This idea that God uh, could have simply just done it another way, uh, we do not find it in the scriptures. Um, We don't find it in the scriptures. And so uh, what we see here is that God has this plan. But why did it have to happen this way? Is God loving in doing this? Is God violent You see, in order to have a God that just forgives and moves on, we'd have to bend and reshape the scriptures and try and make it fit our emotional idea of love. And so for God to ignore sin and simply pardon without a payment would actually be pretty incredible because he would have to be a God who sets aside morality and justice that are embedded in him. And he would have to actually set aside truth to do that. My question is, would you want a God who does that? Would you want a God who ignores a heinous act? I think if any of us ever had an act of violence or a a loved one murdered or raped or committed a crime against or beaten, we would want justice. We wouldn't want it to just be set aside. We would want justice to be had. Goodness and justice go hand in hand. If we're to say that God is good, but he doesn't have any demands for justice or his holiness, think of the rulers and the leaders and the people in history who we proclaimed are good. They've either stood up for, Martin Luther King stood up for injustice in our country. There are rulers and kings who fought for the lands and freed people who are being abused and scorned. The people throughout human history who stood up for what is right are deemed good. Often ending up punishing people who were doing bad and we call them heroes. So we understand a sense of this in our own minds and yet 
We need to admit that the world needs a powerful and good God who punishes wrong, who can also show mercy to wrongdoers. And the reality is that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Not one of us, if given a fair trial before the Lord, could be found innocent. One shred of evidence and the case is over because God is holy and perfect. We couldn't have that relationship with him. So this idea of the penal substitutionary atonement, we can maybe, hopefully, you're beginning to understand that, but can God just put someone in his place? I mean, we don't see that in the court system here. We don't see somebody condemned of murder and then go, unless we make a mistake, kill somebody on their behalf. We don't allow it. And so how does this happen? How does this happen with Jesus Christ? Well, the word penal, we understand, has to do with a legal or a forensic term. It's the idea of a penalty or the satisfaction of justice, in this case, divine justice. So it's a little bit above our scales of human justice. But out of his self-giving love, Christ bore the penalty for our sins that we deserved so that we might be in a right standing with God and freed from the bondage of sin. So it's all about this idea of a legal transaction taking place on the cross. It's not about this some angry, out-of-control God that just has anger that has to be let out. Now some would say it's really just about uh, a debt being paid. If you owe somebody $1,000 and they come up to you and say, I forgive you that debt. You don't owe me anymore. And logically, some people try and say, well, that's just what God should have done with the penalty for sin. And that's what forgiveness really means. You just let it go. You don't owe me anymore. We've already talked about that in the criminal world, that doesn't make sense. And it's not really plausible if you were to say, you know what, I'm angry with my friend So I'm going to go find a random person and I'm going to take it out on them and beat them up. And then my anger will be satisfied and I forgive my friend. That's not how we operate. Um, And so we have to figure out what God is doing. How can Jesus stand in for us? We don't see that around us. Uh, I think William Lane Craig, a well-known scholar and teacher, goes around to... Um, colleges and campuses around the U.S. answering these tough questions. Uh, I love what he says about this. He says, the idea of paying a financial debt, I think that's very misleading as an argument. The transaction of paying a debt is a private affair. It's not a matter of criminal justice. He said, divine forgiveness should be thought more of uh, as a legal pardon than forgiving someone's loan. I think it's perfectly coherent to say Christ has paid the penalty for our sins And on that basis, God turns to us and says, the demands of justice are satisfied. I am now offering you forgiveness. Because remember, there's a part of this equation of God offers forgiveness. By grace we are saved through faith, not by works. We don't earn this, but God has done this so that forgiveness can be offered to us. And yet there's this piece, the Bible says, of us turning, repenting, and trusting in Christ. 
Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have become new creations. Satan has been defeated. The results of the cross were acceptable. Satan no longer has any claim against us. We have been pardoned before the bar of divine justice through Jesus Christ. So as we come back and enfold back into the gospel of Mark, this moment in human history, we have Jesus born fully as a human being, walking the earth. Miracles he does. Teaching that confounds and astounds them and leaves the most scholared people in awe of his understanding of God. And yet, he is without sin and he is taken to trial. They can't even get their stories to line up. But the one thing they got right is that he claimed to be equal with God. And for that, they tore their clothes and said, that's all we need to know. He said, I am and I will be at God's right hand because he is the son of God. So I thought of trying to find a way to help you kind of put this in a nutshell this morning and summarize, help you to grasp this teaching of how Jesus can be the one who satisfies. And I found a 15th century, I went back, because this isn't a question that's new. <laughs> uh, but Turretin, a, uh, uh, Francis Turretin, a um, theologian and priest and teacher from the 15th century, came up with these five requirements that help us understand uh, penal substitutionary atonement. So in order for this to work, in order for Jesus to actually be the one, you'd have to have a common nature of sinner and substitute for it to be a payment once and for all. In other words, it couldn't just be an animal. So he became fully human. Free consent to the substitute, willingness. The substitute has power over his life to determine what is done with it. The substitute has the power to bear all the punishment due and take it away. The substitute must be sinless. What do we read in here? We read that Jesus, even here in Mark 14, 32, was praying and pleading with God. Distressed, he knew what was to come on him. And he said, if this cup, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me, Lord. But if this is the way, it will be done. That idea of a cup means suffering. If there's any other way for this to be done for the world, I would do it. But he knew this was the way to do it. On the cross, if you read another gospel, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's saying, I'm in control here. No one takes my life from me, but I give it freely for you. Each step of the way, I mean, he was alone with Pilate. He had Pilate saw what was going on. He could have turned that on the dime, and he didn't. He remained silent, as Isaiah said he would hundreds of years before. Every single one of these markers, Jesus indeed meets and exceeds because he is the one. The only way, God's design for us to have a right relationship with him. What we need to understand is that this is not an act of uncontrolled wrath or senseless violence. No, this plan, this death of Jesus, this cross, is the greatest act of love the world will ever know. And when we understand this concept and what really happened on the cross... 
it opens up a door to a whole world that changes around us. God loves us so much that even though we are sinners in rebellion against him and under his just and fair judgment, he sent Jesus to take on human flesh. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life because Jesus voluntarily gave himself up as a sacrificial offering, the only way to satisfy the penalty ultimately for our sin. You see, the atonement is motivated from beginning to end by the love and compassion of God. And there's a phrase out there, and I bet many of you have used it, and don't worry, I have too. But uh, it's interesting, you switch a few words in the English language, um, and it changes the meaning. We often say, God is love, right? God is love. We use that phrase. That's how we like to describe him. But if you think about it, that way of describing God says God is love, as if there's some definition of love out there, and we look at God, and he meets that definition. God's met all the requirements of what we say and define love as. Therefore, we say God is love. And if you have that view of God, then you begin to look at love and change the definition of what love is, and it doesn't feel loving when you read this passage and you look at it. And if you read the scriptures, some of the things God says, the way to live, you don't feel like that's love because love would have accepted my choice and how I want to live. And you begin to say, well, Either I've got to change my definition of who God is or my def- in order to meet what love is, but that's backwards. The reality is that love is God. We look at God, and God is the one who shows us what love is. So when the Bible unveils from cover to cover who God is, we can say that's what love is. Because God in his very nature is love. Everything about him, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his wrath, his holiness, his righteousness, all of that encompasses the fact that God is love. We don't need to separate everything out because love is who God is. And when we understand who God is and what he's done for us and that he is the very an actor of love in this world, then our trust can be that the cross is and was the only way. And that's good news because true love doesn't compromise. God just doesn't blink at injustice in this world. And that means that someday full justice will be brought. And that may give some people a lot of peace who've had to live this life, not in this country, but in other countries, and see people killed unjustly. The scales will be balanced ultimately. But in the meantime, God says, I love you enough that anyone who comes to me through my son can have eternal life and forgiveness. This is a loving rescue mission that God designed for you. But you know what this also tells you? how much God values each and every one of you because of that cross is empty. That's how much he cares about us. 
That's how much he loves us. That's how much he went through for you. You are valuable. You don't need to tell someone your value is just based on this cultural feeling or what you feel about yourself. Your value is infinite. Your value is worth the very Son of God to give his life for you willingly on a cross to bear the wrath of God on your behalf. You mean that much to God. He created you for relationship with him. And he gives the opportunity for that relationship to be restored. God is not indifferent to what's going on in our lives. He's not indifferent to what is happening with us, the struggles that we have. And if this happened, is next week we're going to dig into the resurrection, Easter in September. And uh, if these two things happen, though, then this tell us that sin that bears us down and weighs us down is like a burden on us. You now can have power over sin and see real transformation. The blessing of human history and recorded history and being a a believer is that we get to look around and see real lives change dramatically. I don't know about you, but I've seen some dramatic changes by God. I've seen some people that my heart breaks because they won't come to the cross. But when they do, I see redemption and healing and 180 degree changes that no one on this planet thought was possible. And so as we come to the Lord this morning, how are we to respond? Well, I think responding to this truth, there's lots we could say, but perhaps the first thing we should realize is that we should have humble worship. It's all about God and what he has done. Humble ourselves before him and just say, thank you, thank you for doing that for me. Worship him humbly. But then... We have this freedom to rightly view ourselves and our sins. We have this this freedom that is so amazing that God has released us from that bondage. You're no longer captive. You don't have to live in that. We struggle with things in this life, and yet there's this freedom of knowing we have hope and that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. You go out here and you mess up, you come back to the Lord, there is no condemnation. Satan stands before Jesus day and night, the Bible says, accusing. And Jesus says, I died for them. My blood covered that. No, blood covered that. Yeah, they're struggling there. Holy Spirit's helping them. My blood's covering that. If you don't have a struggle with sin and you don't ever worry about sin, then I'd say, do you know what happened on the cross and have you trusted in Christ? But that struggle we now have shows us we're fighting for the Lord and he's left us here. He didn't just scoop us up to heaven. He's left us here to tell his story rightly, to understand who he is, to grow in our knowledge of him, and as we grow, to share our story about God's impacting our lives. We all have that. Everybody's got a testimony, whatever it is. And so this morning, I want you to just listen here to the words of that song we sang again earlier. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 
Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement? Now you know what that means. You can sing it. Can it be? Everything's paid for? Yes. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished with his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. Do you know that the fact that Jesus rose from the grave means that God accepted the payment? If Jesus had stayed in the grave and remained dead, we'd have to wonder, was it sufficient or not? Next week we'll talk about that. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Could you say that out loud with me just a couple times? Say it with me, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's say it again. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a savior beyond belief. And it is hard to understand why the cross? And yet, even today as we walk through an overview of Scripture and look, this was your plan. And I honestly don't understand all of it. <laughs> That's why I had to go and read and just re-dig into it, Lord. But it's vital that we understand that there was a penalty, that you represented us, and that there's an atonement made and that you're satisfied. May we not make your love any less than what it is, Lord, and try and make it fit our emotions and our understanding of this world. Thank you that your plans are far and above ours, and you've led us to freedom, Lord. May we walk in that freedom and celebrate as a people because we are forgiven, and we're forgiven in Christ alone. Please stand as we uh, sing this song and begin to prepare.